Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. And it's not that grit isn't critical, but there's something else that in times of crisis, in times of, of adversity that we need that goes beyond grit. We need to be able to hone our ability to kind of see and interpret what's happening. Like we need to see sort of what are those perceptions and those attributions that we have? What are those perceptions and those attributions that others have about us? And how do we sort of flip these things in our favor? How do we see and act upon opportunities in our own way so that we can actually create something that works and sustains for ourselves. We can't be passively letting others write our narrative. We need to write our own narrative and be guiding our own path and be guiding others' views of us. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. This week, we're focusing on overcoming adversity for Mental Health Awareness Month. We'll share stories of resilience and offer practical advice for building strength and perseverance in the face of adversity. Laura, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks so much. Pleasure to be with you. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So as uh, we were joking here, I'm not sure how in the world my uh, our mutual publisher didn't send me this book, given uh, how much I resonated with the subject matter. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad but, you found me, though. <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, so but before we get into the content of the book, as you know, from having heard a few episodes, uh, I always ask bizarre questions that have nothing to do with your work. Uh, <laughs> so, it's part of your charm. What did your parents do for work? And how did that uh, influence the choices that you've made throughout your life and career? Yeah, I mean, so my parents have actually had a pretty idiosyncratic um, life, both of them in terms of careers. Um, so I'm the child of immigrants. So both my parents um, were originally from Taiwan and then immigrated to this country. And um, my mom um, came from a family that was um, sort of very much into education, like they they were teachers. And but when she came to this country, her very first job was working at a jewelry store. Um, and because she had come here on a scholarship, and the scholarship only covered uh, tuition; it didn't cover room and board. 
And so when she got to the U.S., the first thing she did was trying to find a job that would also somehow cover room and board. And so the perfect job that she found, she describes it as perfect because um, there was this small jewelry store that had um, an apartment right upstairs. And if you sold a certain amount of jewelry each month, you would get free rent. So this was like the perfect sort of situation for her. Um, and and so, uh, but from there, she, you know, she eventually... Um, uh, through her studies and everything ended up in um, computers and she was doing, she was like a programmer. Um, and my father also was a programmer, but he, they did lots of sort of odd jobs. Like I mentioned, because my mother had the jewelry sort of thing going. Um, we also lived on a farm growing up because we couldn't afford any um, housing when I was, when I was born, they couldn't figure, they couldn't afford anything that was close enough to where their jobs were. And so they kind of kept having to go out further and further and further until they found land or property that they could afford. And the, um, the place that they ended up finding was farmland. And it was like, you know, two acres of land. Um, but the people that sold it to them were like, oh, well, are you guys farmers? And my dad was like, oh yeah, totally. We were farmers in Taiwan, um, in Taipei, which is like a city. There's like no farmers yeah. in Taipei. And so when I, growing up, I had, um, you know, chickens and sheep and cows, um, which my parents over time sold off their animals. So that was also sort of one of their, their jobs as well. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, you know, one, if I remember correctly, you have siblings, correct? I think I do. I'm, I have a younger brother. Okay. That's what I, so this is something I wonder about immigrant, uh, immigrants always is that if you're the older of the siblings, like what was the career advice that your parents gave you and how did it evolve with your brother? Because I feel like, you know, I always mm. joke that with, you know, immigrant parents, the first kid is the experiment and the second kid, they fix everything they fucked up on the first one. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, I think in, in very many ways, I think that was our experience as well. My, my parents, I mean, they're one sort of, their mantra for me growing up always was like, just work hard, just keep working hard, work hard. If you work hard, the success, the outcomes will sort of come to you. And so from a really young age, it was always about like success is about hard work. And so I was the very diligent, hardworking sort of child. My brother, who's four and a half years younger, I mean, he he's not to say he doesn't work hard, but he has just a very different perspective. I mean, he is funny and he is charming and he is like all of the things that I'm not, <laughs> or at least as a child, I was painful fully shy. I was not very good at anything at all. Like I was not musical. I was not athletic. I just sort of like put my head down and did my work. And whereas my brother, like every day he would come home from school and he would just like chuck his backpack and then run out and go play like street hockey or like be out with his friends. Um, and I think it was like, my parents were tired by the time my brother was like, came around. Cause you know, there had been a number of years, like they were just tired. And so I was the one who did sort of all of the things at home from, at a very young age, again, like as a child of immigrants, where my parents, their first language wasn't English, I was doing everything from calling the electric company and pretending to be my mother, um, you know, filling out permission slips, um, writing my own notes to my teacher, but pretending that it was my mother and like signing it as if it was her, like doing all those sorts of things. So I think the older child does carry a lot of that brunt, but the younger child, there's just such a charm and there's so much like creativity and innovation. And um, I don't know, there's, there's some sort of like quality that I really admire in those who are sort of younger, the younger sibling. Yeah. 
Well, I think they can get away with a lot, partially because of the fact that, you know, I think the first kid conditions them to, you know, these bizarre experiences. Like I remember when, you know, you go into that phase in junior high where suddenly your social standing is very clear, where it's like, oh, people have really nice shoes and nice clothes. And you come home and you're like, I need a pair of Air Jordans. My dad was like, no, you don't. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm buying you a pair of $100 shoes. Then my sister comes along and she's like, the only jeans that fit me cost $130. My dad's like, yeah, fine. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. And like your brother, my sister was incredibly charming and, you know, sort of um, popular. And it was just like you go to the mall with her at Christmas time. And I was like, how do you know all these people? And, it, it, you know, it's such a, a bizarre experience. So as far as, as, you know, sort of what you should do with your life, I mean, obviously, the hard work thing, I think, is pretty standard for pretty much all, you know, Asian or Indian, you know, immigrants. Yeah. As far as potential career choices, was it standard go become a doctor, lawyer, engineer? Like I think the Indian you know parent version of mm-hmm. a motivational speech is like you can become any kind of doctor you want to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, yeah. Was that the same thing with your parents? I I mean it was a, it was definitely like your choices. There was a limited subset of choices, and amongst those choices was doctor, engineer, um, and engineer was what I chose because that's what my my father was. He was an engineer, and so um, when it came t- time to sort of choose what I was going to major in, um, you know, I I didn't really know what I wanted to major in, to be honest. Like I. Um, I really liked math and I was pretty good at math. And so I thought I wanted to be a math teacher. And my dad was sort of like, nope, you're not going to be a math teacher. And he said, if you love math, well, then you should major in engineering. And so since I was sort of that obedient child, I did. Um, And realized really quickly that I was a horrible engineer. Like I was Mm -hmm. just brute forcing my way through every single class. And I ended up, you know, I ended up graduating with an engineering degree. And then when I got out of college, I realized I actually wasn't really qualified to do anything, anything else other than be an engineer. And so I, you know, my first job was as an engineer, there are some children or some kids or some people who just know what they want to be from a really young age. I just didn't know. And so I think part of my, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up, people would ask and I would always make something up. Like I'd be like, Oh, I want to be a pediatrician or, Oh, I want to be a veterinarian. Cause that's what other people were sort of saying, but I never knew what I wanted to be. And to, in some ways, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. I mean, I do, I do things now that are so like the opposite of engineering. I mean, so much of what I do is writing and, um, and, and the research has some, some connection to that. But, um, I, I think some people just don't know what they want to do. And, and that's totally okay. I think some of the most interesting people are ones that haven't quite totally figured it out. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, I I kind of relate, you know, I'm, you know, sort of the ultimate late bloomer. I think you made a really interesting observation about not knowing, you know, what you want to do, but you go to college and I think there's this sort of expectation that you're supposed to know what you want to do. So you choose a major, which you think will lead to some, you know, particular set of jobs. And Tina Selig, uh, who, you know, is another author and is a professor at Stanford when she was here, she said, passion follows engagement. And the weird thing is we don't really encourage people to sort of explore the things that make them curious and say, okay, go look at the things that you find engaging. Like, it's almost like you accidentally stumble upon that. So you have these people who commit to like career paths, you know, a perfect the example I was thinking of, because I was writing about this this morning, uh, where, you know, I was in college, it's like business majors, like, oh, I want to be an investment banker. Mm-hmm. And all they saw are dollar signs. When I found out what an investment banker actually did, I was like, that sounds mind numbing. I don't want to yeah. do that, no matter how much somebody pays me. 
And it is, I mean, it is not, it, it is very mind. So I did, inv- I was an investment banker for two years. So again, like you talk about like my parents sort of having this really eclectic career journey. I actually have as well. Like I, I've worked in, I've worked as an engineer. I've worked in investment banking. I've worked in consulting. I've worked as a high school teacher in the inner city. Um, you know, lots of different sort of things. And the investment banking piece, like I, I did that for two years and it was really because, um, you know, as I was graduating from my MBA program, I had tons of student loans to pay off. I was, um, I had still, I still had like undergrad loans to pay off. And on top of that, I had the loans from my MBA program. And so I asked all of my classmates, I sort of was like, well, what's the easiest, like, what's the quickest way to, to pay off student loans? And all of them were sort of like, go into iBanking, go into iBanking, go into iBanking. And I remember turning to a friend of mine and saying, wow, this internet banking is really big these days. (laughs) I had no idea that the I even stood for investment banking instead of internet banking, but I did it because, you know, and so the other piece of this is that we, we, we do talk about the passion and I love the sort of the passion follows engagement, but the other piece of it is that, yes, we all have passions, but we also all have sort of responsibilities. And so Mm -hmm. there's this, there's this, this duality between um, feel free to, you know, you know, sometimes we have to wait to follow what our passions are. And, and that's, that's totally fine as well. Like sometimes we have to take jobs and because we have to pay off loans or we, because we have to do something else or because the opportunity presents itself. And it doesn't mean that we can't then go back and do something else. It doesn't mean that we can't make a switch. And a lot of my students especially have a hard time with this because they feel like career trajectories have to be linear, that they Mm -hmm. have to like build on each other, that you do this internship and then it leads to this offer. And then you do this job and it leads to this rotation and do that. And it leads to this position that you have to follow this like analyst to associate, to manager, to, you know, director, to partner sort of lineage. Yeah. And that's just not the case that there's so much more out there and you discover a lot more about your passions and what you can engage with when mm-hmm. you do when you allow yourself a little bit more of that leeway. Well, I think that you, when you look at the, the start of college, I think you're making profound life decisions based on limited data points. You know, like I remember choosing a career in sales because some professor was like, oh, you're a really good presenter. And I absolutely hated it. Like I would yeah. never make that choice now because again i was making a decision about you know a massive part of my life with very limited information uh mm-hmm. yeah so well i so- mean i talk about that i you know a lot of my research like i i look at the, the what we're sort of touching upon i think is so important because you know we we see one quality we look at something like oh you're a really good presenter and then automatically we make that connection to oh you should work in sales but when we think about like what we're really good at when we think about like what are our superpowers what are our like the basic things that that we're really good at that that make us who we are and if we think even in terms of like qualities or traits like someone might be someone who's like super trustworthy and really conscientious and really empathetic and you might have somebody else who's really also very trustworthy and conscientious but that empathy is like replaced with something else that makes that's like a completely different person right it, just changing switching just one quality makes a completely different person and so when we just sort of say like 
this X leads to Y formulaic thing, it also takes away so much of the nuance around who we are. Like you may have been amazing and found a lifelong career in sales if you had just one other quality that you have. Instead, you you're much probably better in terms of not that particular sales piece, but engaging with people and engaging with people around content and around stories and around narratives rather than like closing that deal. You probably, right? Like that's not the part that, that invigorates you as much, not to say you can't be good at it, but that's, that's not naturally what, what you love. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. AWeber. Simpler email marketing. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. 
It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah. So yeah, before we get into to the content of the book, um, I know from having read the book at the beginning, you're a parent and your husband is Italian. So two questions come from this. One, um, having you know had the Asian immigrant experience uh, of dealing with parents, much like I have, um, how has that informed the way that you are raising your daughter in terms of the advice you give her? And, you know, combine that with the fact that you're a professor at arguably the most elite school in the country. And then the other part of this, I wonder, is if you're married to uh, a husband who's Italian, how do you preserve and retain aspects of culture across both cultures? <laughs> yeah. So, gosh, so much in like, there, there's so much there. I think parenting is, it's like, it's one of those things where, you you there is like really no formula but yet you can't do it without following some type of formula or recipe like what i mean by that is like there's so much trial and error in it but yet it's it's based on um something that's been really thought out as as well and we've really wanted to preserve that sort of immigrant mentality in a lot of ways but but it's more a mentality that's around perspectives that come from lots of different places and being able to have that empathy, but also have that empathy and think in terms of like what my kids' own opinions are. So for both of them, like, uh, I think, I think it's really important for them to own who they are and own the fact that they do come from like this multi multicultural family. Um, but, but also know that they can, they can craft their own path and their own journey and who they're going to be. Um, you know, in terms of like my, you know, being a professor at Harvard, I, I have tried really hard to actually not have them know what Harvard is <laughs> so far. I mean, it's getting to the point where to, and and like, so for example, like my daughter came home from school one day and was like, is Harvard a good school? And I'm like, <laughs> it's okay. And where and my son is like, do you want me to go to Harvard someday? And I'm like, no, you can go wherever you want, like whatever school is, you know, so, so I really want them to not feel this sort of pressure. And I think, you know, this is something that I think about a lot because my parents came here with pretty much nothing. And I think often about like, have I tried to go too far in one generation? Like, have I, have I skipped something in which case my kids are going to now be like, well, what's next? Like, where am I going to go? Like, do I now have to go to Harvard? Otherwise I'm going to feel like a failure. Do I need yeah. to do even better than that? Do I have to do better than what my parents have done? And so I sometimes think like there's something to be said for like that that progress and being able to like each generation adding something to to the story adding something to the family identity and that that sort of i think about that sometimes and it bothers me because i want them to sort of feel their own pride in what they've accomplished without mm -hmm. feeling like they've had to rely on something that that i've given them that has been undeserved or unearned mm -hmm. um and and so i think that 
factors heavily into the way that we also try and raise our kids. And then, but, but the final element of that is that it's just really like kind of crazy sometimes because the Italian culture and the, the Taiwanese culture, there are some similarities. Like we both care lots and lots about food, but there are also some similar, there are some things that are so different about our cultures that, that make it just so funny. Like the Italians are so laid back about certain things, whereas the, like me as a Taiwanese mother, I'm such a control freak about about certain things. But then there's other things that will flip. Like, you know, I broke, I was cooking spaghetti one day and I like broke it in half. And my husband, I thought he was going to have like a fit or something. Cause he's like, you do not break pasta. You do not. I'm like, but it doesn't cook as well. And he's like, you do not break pasta. I was like, so they're very, very particular about, about certain things. Um, whereas, you know, I think so. So I think it's helpful um, to it's helpful for our kids to kind of see these sort of disagreements and these different identities and these different cultures. Um, right. You can tell from even my response here that the parenting has not been figured out. Like I'm trying to, I'm almost trying to figure it out as I'm like giving this response to you. I'm like, yeah. oh yeah, how do we parent? <laughs> Well, it's funny because my friend Sarah Peck, who was here, I was asking her about this as well. And she said, well, she was like, parenting is basically this giant shit show. She said, basically, it's an experiment. And you basically tell this kid, hey, kid, we're going to do the best we can. And we're going to probably screw you up. And you're going to spend years in therapy fixing everything uh -huh. you screwed up. Uh -huh. And that that part really, I, I mean, I thought it was really humorous. And another one of our, our guests was like, no matter what you do, you're going to fuck your kids up. Yeah, <laughs> so like, I, I think... I, well, it's, and, and it's sort of reassuring in that in that sense to to some extent as well. Like I heard this analogy once, and I don't know where it came from, but someone said that like parenting is like holding. It's like you're given this really fragile crystal glass, you know, object or ball or whatever, and all you want to do is make sure that you're not gonna like completely shatter it and break it into a thousand pieces. But in so doing, you're going to have to be okay with the fact that you're going to leave smudges on this crystal and that you're going to leave like scrapes on it and that you're going to like, it's, it's not going to be this perfect clear ball that it was when you received it. Um, and so like you, your kids just need to be, or all of us, like we have these flaws, we have these smudges, we have these like scratches. And as long as like, you're not completely dropping it and shattering it into a thousand pieces like your kids will be okay so that's sort of reassuring as well well so i, I think the the perfect segue into uh the content of the book um edge turning adversity into advantage is your work as a you know high school math teacher in the inner city uh but before we get to the specifics about that i mean you're a professor at a university we're in a crisis as far as student loan debt goes that we've never seen before. Um, I, you know, I'm always baffled by the fact that people have this ridiculous perception that the way we're going to get out of this is by students paying off all of this debt. And I was like, look, I was an economics major with a 2.97 GPA. And even I know that any idiot with second grade math could figure <laughs> out that's not going to work because you can't keep having people come into a system in which people keep borrowing money that they're not going to pay back mm -hmm. until the roof caves in. Now, how do we, first off, you know, so, you know, where do we go with this? Like, I mean, obviously, we both believe in the value of education. I think that is something our parents instilled in us. But you're a professor at a school that really, in a lot of ways, is sort of the poster, you know, child of what it means to be, you know, 
educated at a top-notch school. And the funny thing is we had William Dershowitz here who wrote this amazing book called Excellent Sheep, where he talked about sort of the criticisms uh, you know, that people have of these schools. And then he told me, he said, you argue, like I went to Berkeley, he said, you went to arguably the best public school in the country, if not the world. And there was a time when it used to cost like a couple thousand dollars. And now, you know, I have a mountain of debt that I'm always like, wow, am I ever going to get out of this mess? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that was, that was a large, that was, that was a big reason why I actually wrote this book was that, you know, to, to sort of debunk this, this aspect of, um, that the world is truly a meritocracy and that we're going to be able to face adversity and we're going to be able to face obstacles by just working hard. Um, that was what I was taught from, like, like we talked about, that was what I was taught from a really young age. But I think even though so many of us are told that hard work will speak for itself. At some point in our lives, we realize that it, it won't, that hard work alone is not enough, that hard work often leaves us frustrated because you can take two different people who work equally as hard and one person is inevitably going to be more successful than the other. And that's mm -hmm. because so much of so so many of the outcomes are dictated by signals and perceptions and the stereotypes of others. And so the book is really about how do we flip these stereotypes and these obstacles in our favor so that we can create our own edge. And what we are talking about touches upon this really vividly because right now what we're going through is that you know, this adversity that we're all sort of facing, we're facing this in really different ways. For some people, it's financially. For some people, it's physically. For some people, it's emotionally. For some people, it's spiritually. For some, it's all of those all at one time. And because it's impacting people differently, we also have to be able to understand that we need to have different ways to handle it that we need to have different routines and different solutions and different ways that we address this. But instead, what happens is that we see some sort of adversity or uncertainty. Like right now, things are so uncertain. We feel so out of control, like we can't control anything. And so the first thing we do is look at what everyone else is doing. Right? Like everyone else is buying toilet paper. We must also buy toilet paper. Everyone else is baking. We must now also bake. It's like we look at what other people are doing in these times of uncertainty. And we think that the solution is by like it feels like we're getting we're 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 getting some sort of control. But what it's really doing is it's in essence, we're just doing the same things over and over and over again. And we're all sort of hitting the same walls over and over and over again and realizing that it's not actually helping. And so we talk so much now about things like hard work and grit. And it's not that grit isn't critical. But there's something else. There's something else that in times of crisis, in times of, of adversity, that we need that goes beyond grit. We need to be able to hone our ability to kind of see and interpret what's happening. Like we need to see sort of what are those perceptions and those attributions that we have? What are those perceptions and those attributions that others have about us? And how do we sort of flip these things in our favor? How do we see and act upon opportunities in our own way so that we can actually create something that works and sustains for ourselves. So I think that's sort of, um, you know, that's, that's sort of something that we're, we're confronting right now. Um, and it's, it, it's even more apparent because 
you know, a lot of times we also depend on the systems, like we, the, we depend on the government, the systems, the cultures, all this sort of things. But to some extent, we have to assume that it's not going to change. Or even if it does, we can't wait around for it. So we need to, we can't be passively letting others write our narrative. We need to write our own narrative and be guiding our own path and be guiding others' views of us. So one of the things you say early in the book in the very first chapter is that you're dealt the hand you're dealt, but you get to be the one to play it. Now, you mentioned that you're, you know, a teacher in an inner city school. That's a very different experience. Like the context for hearing, you know, or reading what you wrote, you know, to me as a kid who grew up as son of a college professor versus a kid who grew up in the inner city, that's going to be a really different message based mm-hmm. on the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so I guess the, the, the question becomes like, how do you deal with the fact that privilege has to be taken into account here? Because it's mm-hmm. not fair to say like, you know, I remember somebody, some guy in my Facebook feed was like, Oh, you know what? <clears throat> some people just make better choices. And I was like, wait a minute. No, you weren't in, you know, we had a guest here, a guy named uh, Chris Wilson, who wrote this post on meeting up the books that saved his life, life in prison. He said that every encounter he ever had with the police when he was growing up was one of they're there to arrest you. He said people wouldn't even show up in his neighborhood when crimes mm-hmm. were committed. Mm-hmm. That's a very different experience than growing up in suburbia where like the worst thing that happens is that somebody toilet papers your house. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think privilege is a huge piece of it and it's, it's one variable that is, that, that is super important. I mean, I think this, that, that quote that you're mentioning sort of you, you're dealt the hand that you're dealt and but but you get to you get to be the one not only do you get to be the one to play it however you want to play that hand but you get to be the one to determine whether it's a good hand or not a good hand like you don't other people don't get to tell you whether or not it's a good hand or not and so something that i i talk about often is sort of grow where you're planted like that's the first step um so thinking about like, where is it that you've been planted and the analogy, like taking this sort of analogy, like if you're a plant and you've been grown in certain soil, like some people just naturally are grown in better soil and some people are grown in soil that's like not as good. And there is going to always be this element of privilege or disparity um, and and differences. And so when we think about like the choices that we kind of make and whether these choices are good decisions or bad decisions, it's really only, it's not a relative, like you can't compare what a good decision looks like unless you're only looking within your own planter, your own sort of area. And sometimes the only decisions that you can make are like to prune that you need to, in order to grow, you need to prune. So you need to be cutting everything back so that you can sort of, sort of grow. And then when you grow, you can sort of replant yourself in a different place, in a better, in a better sort of soil. And so um, that's what I sort of mean about like, you get to be the one to play your cards and you get to be the one to sort of make these decisions because it's not fair. It isn't fair that there is that there are dis- disparities and it's not fair that some people naturally have an advantage. But it also is a reality that you can empower yourself regardless of the cards that you were dealt or regardless of the soil that you're in to create one for yourself. And that's one of the key reasons that the book, I titled it Edge, because I think and I believe that everyone has the power to create their own edge. And when you can create your own edge, that's when you have that's when you have the power to sort of from your own from your own self, be able to dictate how things are going to go in the future, dictate what your trajectory is going to look like. 
So, you know, I'm speaking sort of a lot in the abstract, but I'll give mm -hmm. you a quick example. Um, uh, one of the one of the fascinating people that I talk about in in my book is a man named Dave Dahl, who um, started this company called Dave's Killer Bread, um, and he um, he was in and out of jail or in and out of prisons. He was formerly incarcerated. He was in and out of prisons for a long period of his life, like just sort of kept, you know, one after another and like, didn't really sort of seem to get a break. And, um, and, you know, this was sort of this, it's like this equivalent of like, you don't really like all these disadvantages are, are against you. Like every time he got out of every time he was like, out in the in sort of the, the free world, he would try and find a job and like nobody would give him a job. And so then he'd feel more and more desperate and then wouldn't wouldn't know what to do and didn't have like support from from people. And and so at one point he he started this company, which is called Dave's Killer Bread. And because when he was really young, he loved to bake. He loved to bake bread with his his family. And so he started this company where they would hire formerly incarcerated people. And so not only did he now have something that he was trying to do, but he was also now bringing in lots of employees, lots of people who also didn't have this sort of opportunity. And you have this guy, you have this guy who was formerly incarcerated, but is baking artisanal bread. And it's just a fabulous story about how like you, others don't get to tell you what you should be. And he sort of did this in a stepwise fashion by first kind of figuring out like could he could he sell bread could he then hire people could he then grow this and 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 each stage along the way allowed him to kind of get to where where he got yeah so you actually structure the book with this you know four part framework of mm -hmm. enrich delight guide and uh maybe hold on uh an effort, effort. Yep. yeah so when you you know in, in the first section of enrich you basically say that um, to identify our basic goods, we must not only uh, only own our strengths, but also our weaknesses. When you acknowledge and accept your weaknesses, you start to see the contours of the playing field. Knowing your weaknesses and basic goods helps you figure out where you can create an edge. And, you know, I was thinking of this in the context of my own career. I think, you know, I emailed you and said, you know, I'm as, as bizarre as this is, I'm the guy who got fired from every job I ever had. <laughs> Turn that into an edge. Yeah. Um, but I guess the, the question then is, is, you know, what takes what causes somebody to take a circumstance like mine and actually make something of it versus somebody who I guess you know some people will let something like that inform them mm -hmm. others will let it define them yeah so the the framework that you're sort of talking about the enrich delight guide and effort that actually is a framework that came out of my research that I've been doing for the last 10 years or so the title of the book is edge because it's about how to create your own edge but edge actually stands for those four components, the E, D, G, E. So the E is for enrich, the D is for delight, the G is for guide, and the E is for effort. So the E that you're sort of speaking about, the first E, enrich, is really about going back to, as you mentioned, what are those core things that you, that you've that as a child you were good at, that as you grew up, you continued to really like hold on to, that you loved, that you were passionate about. Like, what was it? What are those those basic goods that make you who you are? Um, it's 
it's the value that you bring in any sort of context. It's so important to kind of know that, to know where your strengths are, where, know where your underestimated strengths are, know where your weakness is, um, so that you know how you enrich and provide value in any sort of situation. The problem is that we don't always have the opportunity to show how we enrich and provide value. And that's why the D is for delight. Because when you know how you delight others, that's the equivalent of being able to crack the door open just a little bit so that you have the opportunity to then show how you enrich and provide value. And that delight piece is about something that's surprising or counterintuitive or makes somebody sort of pause and take note of who you are. The G is for guide, because even after you enrich and delight, you need to continue to redirect and guide how others see you. You need to guide the perceptions and the stereotypes that they're going to have about you so that you can flip them in your favor. And the final E is for effort, effort and hard work. And that effort and hard work comes last in my framework. We often think it comes first, that if you put in the effort and hard work, that it'll speak for itself, that you'll see the success and outcomes that you're trying to get. But in fact, effort and hard work comes last because if you know how you enrich and delight and guide, that's actually when your effort and hard work work harder for you. And so I think when in your sort of situation where you found yourself kind of constantly getting getting fired or constantly not sort of finding your way, it's because you probably felt to some extent, I'm surmising that you're putting in the work, you're putting in the effort. And so we, and, and we sort of start with that, but then we, we realize that if we actually start with how do we enrich, what are our basic goods? What are those things that we're really good at? And for you, maybe it's, you know, it is connecting with people and and storytelling and, and engaging interpersonally with others. When you start with that, that's when you sort of see how you really provide value in lots of different situations. And again, that's where when your hard work later on comes in, mm-hmm. it's like you get those, you get those tailwinds. Your hard work is actually paying much more in dividends because you've thought about and you're actually putting into place the ways in which you enrich and provide value and delight and guide others. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. Aweber, simpler email marketing. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, 
turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Hey Dave. Yeah Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So, you know, one thing that I wonder, you know, as, as you were saying that, I was thinking about sort of the hiring process and in most companies. And, and when somebody is underperforming, the sort of first thing that, that people resort to is a performance improvement plan. And I, I always say performance improvement plans don't improve performance. They're just a great way for people to avoid lawsuits. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And the thing that struck me is that nobody ever stopped to think and ask, hey, maybe you really don't like this job. Like, yeah. why haven't we asked somebody if, the, you know, uh, what causes people to overlook this whole idea of their basic goods, both from, you know, sort of a manager standpoint and an employee standpoint? Like, Because mm-hmm. when I look at our resume as a tool for hiring, and I, I realized this when we hired our community manager, Melena, I remember when I called her and I said, look, I, I've got a dozen resumes from people. None of these people are, are good at what they do. Um, I just happened to know, you know, she would write these really just beautiful summaries of our episodes. And I said, we need a community manager. I need somebody who can help me build this thing from the ground up. And I need you to basically connect all the dots. And she looked at, she basically said, I'm a civil engineer with a PhD. I don't know anything about social media. And I was like, that tells me two things. You're smart and you know how to solve problems. Mm -hmm. Yet by the, by the, you know, but if, if we had looked at the job description, she met none of the criteria for them. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. yet she was the best hire we've ever made. So like, why do you have this constant mismatch of talent and environment when we know that this is what it leads to? Yeah, I think there's two different components to that, like two separate components to that. You speak about, you spoke about kind of the manager side and then the employee or the individual side. I think from the manager standpoint, we sort of have to remember, like the manager is not going to, like the the manager is, has not only his or her own sort of purview of what's happening in, 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 in his or her particular environment, but he just doesn't have that sort of understanding in terms of like what each employee needs, what each employee's particular strengths are. That's why this sort of guide piece is so important. Like we need to be able to guide people to who we are, who we authentically are, because there's so many quick heuristics that are being made. There's so many quick sort of 
judgments and perceptions that we have to make because we are cognitively limited in some way. We can't process it all at the same time. And there's also sort of business objectives and business needs, right? So an example of this is I had at one point, I had this assistant who started off really, 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 really great. Like she was doing a great job. She was really on top of things. And then like a month later, I realized that her performance was like totally starting to fall off. Like, you know, things weren't getting done. Things were were getting missed. And I sort of was like, what is happening here? Like, why, why was it that she was so engaged and so good at what she was doing? And then now it's like, she's not, she's not engaging at all with this. And, and part of it was like, I had this conversation with her and I'm like, you know, help me understand what is what's happening here. And I don't think we do that enough. Like we sort of just immediately say like, performance is not good. Here's a performance remediation plan. Instead of sort of saying like, help me understand how you feel about this position. Help me understand like what's going through your mind. What are the pieces of this that you like, that you don't like? What are the pieces that you're engaging with that you don't engage with? What are the things that you feel excited about coming into work to do? What are the things that you dread sort of doing? And what I realized was like, she was just so way overqualified. Like she wanted to be doing really deep, like she wanted to be doing deeper thinking. And the sort of role was, was not fit for her because she could do it really well. But then once she sort of, once she sort of excelled at it or, or figured out the way to do it efficiently, like it was no longer interesting to her. And so then it was like, okay, well, would you like to do more things that could engage with like my research? Are there things that you could do? And so like trying to shift and craft the job, Amy Rezineski, who's a professor at Yale, talks a lot about job crafting and how you can sort of craft your job even within the limited set of, of what your job responsibilities are, how even then you can sort of craft it to be much more in line with what you'd like like it to be. So that's sort of from the manager's sort of point of view. But from the employee or from the individual point of view, part of it is that we often step into roles that are not right. And there's a number of different reasons for that. One is sometimes practically, we just need to be, we need to have a job or we need to, so we try and optimize and make it as good as we can. But we also, we also sort of follow lots of social cues. We look at other people and we're like, oh, wow, like, I'd, really be li- I'd really like to do that. Or like, look at that person and how amazing their life is. I'd really like to do that. And again, we don't go back to what are our basic goods? How do we enrich? And is that job? Because there's lots of people who would be really good at lots of different things. So how do we sort of figure out with this complex equation, you know, which things are going to sustain us and invigorate us for the long term versus not? And um, and so I think part of the onus is also on us to make sure that we are looking and keeping our eyes out for those kind of opportunities and seeing and act upon uh, acting upon those those opportunities. And then the final piece of it is just when we see those those job descriptions. You know, there are, there are some people who read those job descriptions and they're like, oh yeah, I've done like one or two of these things. I'm going to apply. And there's yeah. other people who look at those and they're like, oh yeah, I've done one or two of these things. I'm not going to apply because I've only done one or two out of the 10. And so there's differences in terms of like what we see. And when people are putting the 
job descriptions together, like often they're just copying and pasting from other things <laughs> anyways. I mean, like no one likes to be putting together a job description. Like when I start to think about like the people, what do I say? Like we all sort of say the same things. We want people who are like, you know, detail oriented and innovative and think outside the box and are good with people. And like we put the same thing. It doesn't tell us anything about whether or not that person's actually going to be good in that job or not. <laughs> so one of the things you talked about is this whole idea of recognition of the incongruous. And it's particularly interesting when you think about it in the context of sort of the, the online marketing world or even the world we live in. It's like, oh, everybody should go work at a startup in Silicon Valley or, you know, some influencer says everybody should start a podcast or you get this situation where, you know, somebody goes to a life coach to discover that their calling in life is to become a life coach. It you know becomes yes. a sort of echo chamber. Uh, and so you said that starting somewhere less crowded enables you to hone your core competencies before expanding your circle of competence. It helps you avoid the human tendency, tendency to equate popularity with excellence. And you know, I was thinking when I saw that, I was thinking back to this conversation I had with Scott Galloway uh, about earning potential, and how he talked about the fact that you know, if you go to like a New York versus you know uh, somewhere in Tennessee, you, you know, your earning potential is going to be significantly higher. He said you're also going to play a bigger game because he said you know if you're basically hitting tennis balls with Roger Federer every day, you're going to become a much better tennis player inevitably because of the fact that you're surrounded by people who are better than you. Mm -hmm. But on the flip side of that, to your point you have the ability to go somewhere small and be sort of a big fish in a small pond. Because mm -hmm. I remember I interviewed with Harris while I was in my MBA program. And the best piece of advice I ever got was from this guy who said, go to a small market because mm -hmm. he said in a small market, you're going to be given a hell of a lot more responsibility as opposed to going to Vegas. I never mm -hmm. got the job. That's a whole other story. <laughs> so how do you resolve that, that paradox of what Scott says with, you know, what you say, because there's, you know, there's a grain of truth to both. Yeah. I mean, I'm a big fan of Scott's, but that piece of advice, I'm not a fan of. I mean, so I totally disagree that if you want to get better at tennis, go hit balls with Roger Federer because, okay, the reality of it is, first of all, if you don't even know what tennis is, you're not going to get better by hitting balls with Roger Federer. There's going to be flying totally by you. You're going to be getting hit by the balls. Like you're going to be sitting there trying to return something. There's no way you're going to be able to develop like the fundamentals of what your swing should look like, of like how to sort of run after the ball, like what angles to hit at, how to keep score, like any of those sort of things. It's just not realistic. Number two, like Roger Federer will never want to hit balls with you. And so, <laughs> and so if we're all sort of chasing Roger Federer being like, if I get, if I can hit, if I can just hit balls with Roger Federer, we're going to be, I'm going to be better. And that's like the equivalent of right now. Like we're all chasing after these sort of same things. Like you see all these people like, okay, I need to start a podcast. Like, okay, but first, are you going to be good at doing a podcast? Like, you know, it's so do you understand? Like, so we see people sort of chasing all the same things, which means that your percentage of getting Roger Federer to actually notice you is minuscule because everybody else is trying to follow that advice. Yeah. And even if you do get Roger Federer to notice you and hit balls with you, there's no return on that for you because those balls are just going to be flying past you. And the amount of incremental learning you're going to get is so small. All you're going to be able to do is sit there and be like, wow, this guy's really good. Yeah. But instead, if you, if you sort of start and, and, and think more about, again, it's like this grow where you're planted kind of analogy or like small markets or 
big fish in a small pond. Like start out by finding people where you can really learn the game. You can Mm -hmm. learn, you know, what sort of stance do I need to take? What kind of, how do I swing the racket? Like what angle do I hold the racket at? Was this, is my grip even correct? Like if you start learning those sort of things and building your way up at some point, then not only are you going to be more likely to attract Roger Federer, but you're going to get much more from like learning it. It's also like when I was taking, I was taking, um, a long time ago, I was trying to learn golf. And the thing with golf is that, um, you can only really focus on one or two things at, at one time. Like you can't be thinking about your swing and the distance and what club to use and your grip and all these things. You can only really focus on one thing at one time, which is like your grip or your, the rotation of your shoulders or whatever else, whatever the case might be. And so we need to be able to allow ourselves and give ourselves permission to know that like everything is a journey. And a lot of times we're seeing we're seeing people's finished product and we're not seeing sort of the journey that they went through. We watched the Olympics and we're like, Oh my gosh, look at that. Or like, Oh, how could they have not landed that triple axle? Oh my gosh. But we're not seeing like all of the minutia that went into getting to that, to getting to that point. Yeah. Well, it's funny in both uh, mastery and uh, the, the 50th law, the, the books that Robert Greene wrote, he talks about the importance of prioritizing learning over money. And it, I always think back to the story of some startup founder I met when I was a junior in, or summer after my senior year in college, because I had one extra semester. And I remember he told me, he's like, I can pay you $10 an hour, but he said, you'll learn a ton. You'll be my, my right hand person. And I turned down the job and I, you know, a couple of years later, I looked him up. I was like, wow, this guy is worth fortunes now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because I passed that up and that, you know, anytime somebody asks me, like, what advice do you have for somebody who's just starting? I'm like, look at an opportunity that's going to expand your earning potential over time, not how much you'll earn right off the bat. Yeah. I think you need a balance. I mean, I think you really need to, you need to be realistic and think about both like a lot of times I have students who come to me and they're like, Oh, like, what should I do about this internship? And like, and I'm like, it's so it, everything, it depends. Like, so I look at their resume and I'm like, okay, you've already. So, so sometimes it's like, should I go work for this super famous venture capitalist fund or should I go work for this like unknown venture capitalist fund that's going to have me doing like X, Y, and Z, right? And sometimes the answer is like, go work for this unknown venture capital firm because you're actually going to be doing work. You're going to be seeing the deals that are coming in. You're going to be actually doing due diligence. You're going to be like, you know, you're, you're going to be looking at real deals. Whereas the other one in a summer, all you're going to really be doing is like shuffling around paper, maybe looking at one small element, doing one small financial analysis, bringing people coffee, like whatever it is. But it really depends because that brand name does matter. I mean, like realistically, if you haven't ever worked for like a big sort of brand name, maybe it's worth it to sort of say like, hey, I've hit balls with Roger Federer before, right? Like after you've gotten a certain amount of credibility and and know-how. Other times it's like with students who have like already, like they have Goldman Sachs and they've got McKinsey and they've got all these things on their resumes. I'm like, okay, well, you know, it's not going to ever hurt you now to then go to this no name thing where you can now really engage and get the content and get the understanding and the know-how. And so thinking realistically about how it works for us and who we are. And the second part of this is also knowing what you care about, like knowing, being 
really honest and vulnerable with yourself and like saying like, what do I care about? Do I care about prestige? Do I care about money? Do I care about challenge? Do I care about, and like, because a lot of times we don't want to admit to ourselves certain things that we really do care about. So for me, for example, I truly, honestly do not care about prestige. And, you know, even though I'm a professor at Harvard and it sounds funny, I don't care about prestige. Like I could be teaching at, um, you know, a community college and maybe someday I will be teaching at a community college or any unknown college and be just as happy. But I do care a lot about financial safety. And I think a lot of it comes from, as a child, I had very little financial stability. We didn't have, you know, we didn't have sort of that, that rainy day fund. We didn't have, we were sort of living, you know, paycheck to paycheck. We did have to scrap and scrimp and save for a very, very long time. And so money, I'm, I, I had to sort of admit to myself was something that was important to me that I need, I needed sort of that financial safety. Um, and so when we can sort of do that for ourselves and say things like, well, what do we care about here? Do we care about the name brand and the prestige? Or do we care about the finances and the money? Or do we care about the challenge and the work? Or do we care about, you know, and, and when we can sort of do that, it also helps point us to where is that pond? regardless of whether it's a big pond or a small pond, where is that, that pond that's going to be right for, for ourselves? Yeah. Well, so, you know, one of the things you talked about is biases and stereotypes. And you said that we're all susceptible to stereotype and judgment, no matter who we are. Classic research on social perception tells us that we all rely on stereotypes to some extent. My roommate always harasses me about this jokingly. He's like, so you think this woman is smart just because she's a doctor? And I'm like, yeah. I was like, I'm Indian. I was like, that is absolutely a bias there. I was like, she's a doctor. Everything she says is backed up by science. So she's far more credible than somebody who's not, as far as I'm concerned. But right. I realized that is absolutely a bias. There are plenty of doctors who are full of shit. Yeah, well, um, the person who graduated last in their class is still called yeah. doctor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Whereas, you know, there could be somebody who does, you know, integrative health coaching or whatever, who actually gives much better health advice. Yeah. Um, and so I guess, you know, when you look at it from that standpoint of, you know, being at an elite school like Harvard, uh, I, I think that, you know, <clears throat> like you said, we're all susceptible to this. And the thing that it comes to my mind is, you know, particularly in the online world, we can craft the perception of status and influence. Um, <clears throat> you know, I think that I told you, like, I almost will never use somebody's sort of mm -hmm. perceived status as a way yeah. to, to choose guests. The most important mentor I had, who I think I, I credit with being where I'm at today, um, virtually invisible on the internet. Um, he had 100 followers on Twitter. And I just thought he was interesting. We got to be friends. He was a guest here. Uh, the mentor that actually helped us raise our first round of venture funding. Same thing. He happened to be a podcast listener. We started skiing together. He's not famous, nothing. Like, it, it, you know, he's well known in a, a small subset of people in, in um, you know, Boulder, where I live. But how do we deal with that? Both, you know, when it comes to the, the fact that some people feel that they have no status and that stereotype basically limits what they think is possible. Mm -hmm. And how do you also avoid the bias of, oh, this mm -hmm. person is a doctor, this person went to Harvard? Because as a result of that, plenty of people who are more qualified are missing out on jobs. It's not like everybody yeah. who goes to Harvard becomes a billionaire. In fact, the majority of people who become billionaires probably never set foot at Harvard. For sure. I mean, I think this is why, I mean, I think this is what's so frustrating about, about this sometimes. I mean, quite honestly, like I think, um, you know, there were, there, there was definitely a period of time where I was feeling super jaded and, and like almost bitter about this because there's, there's so much of our world that 
you know, I talk about how, you know, there's really two pieces to, to being, um, you know, to this being like how you enrich. The first is that you provide some sort of value. And then the second piece is that others believe that too, that others also believe that you provide value. And some people are just really good at that second piece, convincing others that they provide value and they don't have the first piece. And, and so it's, is there an and in between those two statements or is there an or? Is it that you provide value and other people believe it? Or is it that these two are, are, are not linked and that some people just are naturally good at managing perceptions and managing impressions and having others believe that they're, they're good at something or that they're talented in some way, but they're not. And I feel like that leaves a lot of us frustrated because we see, you know, people who are like kissing up to the boss, or we see people who have achieved some sort of success, but in by any sort of count or any sort of real quantitative way don't deserve what they sort of have achieved. And so how do we sort of separate the, the fluff from, from like the real, you know, the real substance. Um, and I think what ends up happening is that because a lot of us are frustrated by, by this, that we ourselves don't want to be that. Like we are like, I don't want to be that person who kisses up to the boss. And so I don't then want to manage impressions. I don't want to then guide the perceptions of others because I want to just be me and not be like that person. And so that ends up sort of harming us too, because what I say to people is like the, the sort of work that I've done and the framework that I've sort of come through through my research, it's actually the opposite of that. It is you're authentically, you know who you authentically are and you are, and because you know how others see you, you're redirecting to how they authentically should see you. This is about like, people are going to have first impressions of you, regardless of whether you help them on what that first impression should be or not, right? People are going to be, as soon as they're meeting you, as soon as they're meeting you, writing some sort of story about who you are and where you've come from and what you're capable of. Why should we allow them to do that? We should be writing our own narrative and guiding others' view of who we really are, of where we really can enrich. And so that's sort of this, this, this tricky piece is like, how do we, how do we, number one, get really good at knowing how others see us, which is a big part of sort of my work and my book. And the second part is like, when we know how others are perceiving us, how do we then redirect them to how they should be seeing us? So I think it's, 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 it's taking these two pieces and, and understanding them in different ways, what other people are doing versus what we are really doing ourselves. And in terms of how we ourselves can be better at like, identifying the people who truly do believe, bring value and not. I mean, we're able to do that when we are honest with ourselves as well. Like, you know, like we talked, we've talked before where like you sort of know the people who are authentic and the people who really have something to say versus the people are, who are sort of a product of marketing and publicity and other sort of things. And, you know, it's, um, not everything is going to be completely right. And some people are going to sort of slip through the cracks, but you just have to sort of keep the main thing, the main thing for yourself. 
Um, because otherwise it does sort of leave you bitter and jaded. And that's, that's something that I, I've, I talk a lot with my students about. Like I do this thing where I ask my students at the beginning of one of our sessions, I say, okay, I want everyone to close your eyes and think about a situation. Think about a time where that you still, that still like sort of nags at you, some sort of situation where someone wronged you or someone did you dirty or somebody, something happened that you still feel like every time you think about that, it makes you like angrier, makes you bitter, makes you, the amazing thing is that within like 15 seconds, everyone in the room can think of at least one of one situation or one person. And sometimes it goes back to like decades, like a decade or more ago. Uh-huh. Years well, I ago. One right as you were saying. All that, so. <laughs> right. And it makes you angry and you're like, oh, like I consider myself, you know, like those are those. So, but I talk a lot about like my entire last chapter is about this bitterness. Like, how do we take these situations when we're starting to feel bitter about something? How do we like ask ourselves the questions? Is this making us bitter or better? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that that's not gonna still like be this chip on your shoulder or this this, but there's going to be scar tissue, but how do we sort of allow it to not be an open wound so that we can continue to like, so that it's now a protection that there's scar tissue. It's now protective. And even though it's going to be there that we can now let it make us better. And that's so important. And I think we don't often think about, about that piece. We let the bitterness drive us like, and that, that makes us sort of feel like we're entitled to something or it gives us some sort of a negative, like, interact, like negative way that we interact with other people or, and so we need to find a mechanism for ourselves to let it make us better and not bitter. Yeah. Well, so there's one last piece of this about trajectory where you said it's not just who you are as an individual that people will be judging. People will also be judging your path, the trajectory of where you've been and where they think you're going. Now, the funny thing, the reason that that caught my attention was one of my friends went and looked at my LinkedIn profile. He was like, why are all the jobs that you got fired from on this thing? He's the only thing you should be, you know, front and center here anymore is the fact that you're an author at Penguin and as public speaker. He's like, those things are going to make you look like a rock star. All the rest of this makes you look like an idiot, Um, which, you know, makes me think like I always say if I went in to apply for a job now, I think I would have a much better chance of it because I'd have a lot more to bring to the table than I ever did before. But, you know, you teach at a place like Harvard. I went from being at Berkeley as an undergrad to Pepperdine uh, as an MBA student. And I saw one of the first things I noticed was the filtering process, how different it was in terms of who came to hire there. People like McKinsey and Bain and all these like really prestigious companies, they don't go to places like Pepperdine. They only go to places like Berkeley and Harvard and, you know, Wharton and all these places. So, I mean, when you have a trajectory that isn't meeting the sort of filter, how do you deal with that? There are so many different kinds of trajectories. There are so many different types of trajectories. And I think that's what we sort of like, we don't always tune into that. Like, just like people are evaluating us for our traits, like, is this person trustworthy? Are they committed? Are they hardworking? They're also sort of evaluating us based on our trajectories. And sometimes those trajectories are things like, distance traveled like how far of a distance have you traveled how did you start out kind of growing up in 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 poverty and you somehow find found your way out of that and now look at all the things that you've accomplished some people might have sort of this zigzag sort of trajectory people like dave Dahl have this sort of second chances trajectory right like formerly incarcerated here's what i'm doing with my second chance we need to sort of also just like we 
we when we think about how we enrich and provide value in terms of our basic goods, also thinking about like, what is our trajectory? What is that story that we're trying to tell? What is our narrative? Because that's how we're going to be able to guide people, not just on who we are, but more importantly, sometimes where it is we're going, how we're going to continue providing value going in the future. Hmm. So I have two sort of final questions for you. How have you seen this play out in the trajectory of your, you know, lives of your students? I mean, arguably, these are the most hireable people in the world. Like, I don't know. You know, when you when we graduated from Pepperdine in April 2009, I think something like 80% of my graduating class was unemployed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Mark Burnett was the keynote speaker. And it was like, well, this is fitting considering we're about to go experience a real life version of Survivor. Uh, yeah. But, you know, like it's got to be so different than being a Harvard MBA where you have, you know, endless amounts of options and choices. And it seems like everybody wants to hire you. Yeah. There's two really funny things that I've seen. I mean, some of, I mean, like my students are so bright. I mean, they are so good. They're so talented. They're funny and smart. And, um, and, but at the same time, one of the things that I find that's so like interesting is that there's this huge, like overachievers paradox where (laughs) if you think about like normal, like everyday people like myself, like something goes wrong and like, I'm kind of like, okay, you know, like, but like they sort of bounce. So like on a scale of one to 10, right? Like something sort of goes wrong. I'm like, oh yeah, okay. It's sort of like a four something goes right. I'm like, okay, it's sort of like a six. Like for some of them, like, it's like, they're constantly bouncing between like one and 10. Like they made a bad comment in class. Now all of a sudden it's like, my life is over. I'm never going to be able to get that internship in private equity. I'm like going to fail this class. I'm such a failure. And then like, they make a great comment in class. Like, I am like going to do so well. I'm going to totally smash this job market. I'm going to like, like they're constantly bouncing between like this one and this 10. And so sometimes I have to sort of like remind them and rein them in on like, you are so capable. Like, So at the same time that you have to bring, like, just sort of equalize it a little bit. So like, that's one of the things. The other thing is like, is sort of, it, it sometimes feels like it's harder for them to kind of hone in on what their basic goods are. There's so many different opportunities. And, and so I have to remind them, like, go back to like, what is it that you want? What is it that you're good at? Forget all of your classmates. There's so much social pressure and social anxiety. And so I think this is a lesson for like all of us, because I think all of us do this. And I think all of us, you know, I don't think the, the, the good comparison is like, are you a student at Harvard or not? Like we all have so many talents. Um, I was rejected from Harvard three different times. I was rejected as a doctoral student. I was rejected in their MBA program and I was rejected as a faculty member the first time I applied. So, you know, I am very much sort of this outsider at, at Harvard in, in lots of different ways. And so I feel like I feel very grateful that I have this perspective of this insider looking out as well as the outsider looking in. And just, I think it's just this reminder of people to remember that like, we all have superpowers. We all have things that we're really good at. And we just need to be able to have that vulnerability to admit to ourselves what it is, even if it looks different from what other people have and be able to then, you know, take how we enrich and delight and guide so that our hard work does work harder for us. Mm, Wow. 
Wow. Um, this has been incredible. I, I feel like I could talk to you for hours about this because it seems like a really deep rabbit hole. Like, the, 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 I feel like you'll probably have a sequel to this book. <laughs> I, I hope so. We'll see. I'm a little well, tired from the process, but, uh, but maybe well, sometime. Yeah. I can relate. So uh, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? You know, I think... I think it's owning where you've come from and owning where you want to be. Wow. Um, well, like I said, this has been mind-blowingly cool. Um, I have so enjoyed talking to you. Where can people find out more about you, your work, the book, and everything else that you're up to? Yeah, so my website is my first name, last name, .net, so laurahuang.net. Um, and I'm on Instagram, Twitter, lots of social media, laurahuangla. Um, and then my book is available in all sort of, you know, audible ver- – Amazon, Barnes and Noble, but support your local booksellers as, if you can, um, your local community booksellers. Um, and, and yeah, so it's such a pleasure. Thank you so much for what you do for, for getting all of this great content out to all of us. Uh, my pleasure. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.